We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol, (laughs) and my name is Sunshine Day. And I got to tell you that uh, admitting that I was powerless over drugs and alcohol wasn't always the most easiest thing for me to do. Um, See, I was born and raised in the Bronx, and being from the Bronx, um, only the strong survived. And because only the strong survived, it was imperative for me to be tough. And even though I was born in a female body, I wanted to be tougher than any boy that I knew. And I, uh, I wanted to be just that, that person that you couldn't penetrate. I wanted to be so strong and just so awesome that you couldn't get to me, that your words couldn't get to me, that nothing could tear me down. And I always wondered why I, you know, as an adult, I wondered why I wanted to be that person, that kid, that, that one that was impenetrable. And it all started with, uh, you know, being born and raised to a loving family and having a dad that loved me uh, to the ends of the earth. I, I, I can remember still being in his arms and in my mom's arms and just the love and affection that came from them. And they taught me how to love so deeply and so strongly. But all of that changed when I was about four years old. Because uh, one day my dad didn't come home and my life changed. And I didn't know what happened. I just know that it changed. I just knew that from that moment on, too, that adults would lie to me and that I would not be told the truth in each and every circumstance possible. I think that's where I figured out at somewhere in those young, formidable years that uh, I needed to be tough, impenetrable, you know, to be able to spot a liar, to be able to uh, know when people were trying to take advantage of me. It's interesting because even though it was my dad who died, everything around me seemed to die too. My mom um, was grieving the loss of my father, so she was emotionally unavailable to me. Um, My grandmother became our primary caregiver for quite some time as my mom then had to go out into the working world to make a living uh, for us. And see, I remember at the funeral being told that uh, your daddy is asleep. Well, it was pretty strange because I had been in the bed with my parents before. I seen my dad sleep. This was nothing like any sleep that I've ever seen before. And I got pretty scared because here's my dad asleep, and there they are putting that coffin 
and lowering it in the grave and watching the emotions of the people and my mom trying to jump in the grave with my dad, I knew he wasn't asleep. I knew there was something wrong and I just didn't know what it was. And only as a four-year-old could, of course, I made up some stories. And I think that that is where things kind of changed for me. You see, uh, I knew that I was being lied to. I knew that at some point in time that um, my dad would never come back. I knew that the things that the adults were telling me were not were not true, but I just didn't know what was the truth. And so as a kid trying to take care of my, my younger sister and myself and trying to take care of my mom, who then started suffering from migraine headaches, I became this kind of kid that wanted to just be good. For some reason, um, I wanted to, you know, I was told and I wanted to just be good, but I also didn't want to be taken advantage of. I felt super vulnerable um, that people around me could just say things to me and uh, they thought that I would believe them. Yeah, I remember one time my sister and I were on punishment and uh, we were sentenced to be indoors. That was our punishment. It was a hot summer day. We couldn't even go outside. And golly, my mother and grandmother get into this argument because my grandmother thinks we should be outside playing as kids. And my mom is trying to teach us a lesson. And needless to say, you know, the drama breaks out and each of them, you know, in this power struggle tries to commit suicide. My grandmother throws herself down and tries to put this knife through her chest while at the same time, a few minutes later, my mom tries to swallow some pills. And all of this drama in my immediate family, way before even being 10 years old, I was about seven or eight years old when this happened. You know, it just, for me, it shook and rocked my world. I really didn't know where I belong. The other thing that really rocked my world was, you know, losing my dad at four. His skin complexion and my skin complexion were quite similar. As a matter of fact, I looked more like my dad and my sister looked a lot like me. It was interesting because, well, my my sister looked a lot like my mom. And my sister and I would be out with my mom and everybody would automatically think that my sister was my mom's kid and that I was just my sister's friend. So already from such a young age with so much trauma and feeling like I didn't even belong as part of my family, I always was trying to escape. I was trying to just find the place where I belong. And it wasn't long before I noticed that (laughs) I had this attraction for girls. My younger sister had attraction for boys. And that I was told that girls were supposed to like boys and boys were supposed to like girls. And yet here I am, a girl, and I like girls. So again, another place where I'm different, another place where I feel like I don't fit in, like there's something wrong or that I don't trust the adults around me to tell me the truth 
or to nurture me or to care for me or to love me. Once my dad died, everything changed. Everything. So by the time I was 12, 13 years old, and I had the opportunity to be in junior high school and have my first drink, wow, all of a sudden my life changed. You know, that idea of drinking was quite taboo. We grew up Catholic, and then we grew up Jehovah's Witness. And I did find myself getting lost in religion. And this idea of a God that loved me and this idea of a God that created everything and this idea of a God who um, I could have a personal relationship with. And yet what was quite interesting at that time was that I can talk to you about the Bible, but I was still afraid. I was still afraid that I just did not fit in someplace. So. What ends up happening is that I become a baptized Jehovah's Witness, and I turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood God, even then as a young child. But what I didn't know was that being a Jehovah's Witness would mean that I would need to be honest. And in that honesty, my mom discovered that I, um, that I was gay. And she turned me into the congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses, and they too disfellowshipped me. So I, w- I, I became an outcast. And so here I am, you know, as a young teen, I'm experimenting with alcohol. I'm, you know, drinking early in the morning um, on the way to gymnastics practice. I'm experimenting and finding out about my own sexuality. I'm being as honest as I possibly can. And then I'm being told that I am an abomination and that I'm not in God's favor. And I just didn't get it. I just didn't get how all of this was happening to me and that I was really living in this victim consciousness that life was happening to me and that the things that were so natural for me, I'm being told that it's not right and that that my life is wrong. And I just did not understand. As a young teenager, I decided to leave home and become an emancipated minor. I moved in with my girlfriend. I uh, was working after school and this is now in high school. But by that time, I was really trying to escape, trying to find myself. So I was drinking more. Um, I was experimenting with drugs. I was snorting cocaine, snorting heroin. I was stealing money from my employer. I was just trying to find myself and really trying to live life. I didn't know. I had to figure it out for myself. So needless to say, in my teenage years, when I first came out to the beautiful state of California, I loved it. And I remember watching television and watching kids be in high school and on the beach and things of that nature. And I thought, California, that's where I want to be. And, you know, by the time I left New York, I was 18 years old. I, uh, I was drinking and drugging. I was going to bars and clubs because it was legal in New York at the age of 18. And what I didn't know, it was that in the state of California, I had to be 21 to buy alcohol. 
So when I got here and went to the liquor store to buy some some beer, you know, to the store to buy some beer and to the liquor store to buy some liquor, they wouldn't sell it to me because I was only 18 years old. And it's like, wait a minute, I have my own apartment here. I have a job here and I can't buy booze. I have a car and I can't buy booze. I just didn't get it. So of course, my 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 drinking and drugging uh, took a detour and it was easier for me to buy drugs than it was for me to buy alcohol. Uh, and at the time it was weed. And then I started smoking cocaine and started smoking crack. And it was during the time in California, right before the Olympics came to Southern California in the 80s. What I can tell you is that my life was fast and furious, that my uh, my my drug career took me down pretty quickly. I mean, I remember losing everything and making a phone call to my mom back in, in New York. Um, by that time, my mom had also remarried and I had stepbrothers who had molested me and all kinds of stuff as well. But, you know, what I can share with you is that here I am, like 19 years old, 20 years old. I'm calling back home going, hey, I need to come back home because I burned some bridges. And I had gotten involved with some folks uh, that were super, super shady. And all of my friends, interestingly enough, um, they were all getting arrested because in the city of Inglewood, California, the police department was getting ready for people to come to the state of California for the Olympics. And the world needed to see California as this pristine, pretty place. They, they couldn't see, you know, dope fiend sunshine, alcoholic sunshine at Mr. B's liquor store on the corner, you know, panhandling <laughs> and knocking people over the head just to get, you know, my next pill fix or drink. So it was it was quite interesting that, you know, I got out of Dodge uh, right in time and, and that a lot of the people who I was running the streets with, they all got picked up and arrested and, and spent some time uh, in jail, in prison, got some sentences while um, I left back to New York. I'm grateful for that trip back to New York, my second geographic, right? And and I say that now because it was there that um, as I continued in my drinking and using, you know, I met more and more people and my bottom kept getting worse and worse and worse. But I remember having this job where I sold massage pillows, you know, the pillows that you put behind your back. And uh, when you lean on them, they start to vibrate and they start to, you know, cause you to relax a little bit. I was selling those. And you know, one thing that folks with alcoholism and drug addiction, what we could do for sure is we could sell a snow cone to an Eskimo. Like we have the gift of gab and we have the ability to really use uh, the art of persuasion and manipulation and coercion to our advantage. And I did just that. I mean, I was a, a pretty good salesperson and I can sell these massage pillows and we got paid cash on a daily basis. And, um, you know, I remember one day I, one morning, um, I walked into, uh, to the office and it was pretty much kind of like an AA meeting, our, our little bullpit, you know, our, 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 bull, our bullpen. And, you know, every morning when we would get together, like around 7am for our, our morning 
our morning meeting, you know, it'd be like, we want to, we want to congratulate Sophie, Sophie sold 10 pillows. And, you know, it reminds me now of, you know, how when people get a 30 day chip or a newcomer chip or a 60 day chip, but we were just like clapping and screaming and just like, yeah, cheering each other on for selling these pillows. And I remember, you know, being there this one morning and I was just already like nodding out. I was nodding out because uh, just before work, I had done some heroin and uh, it didn't work. I mean, I didn't feel it on the subway because it was super cold. But sure enough, once I got to the office and it was nice and warm and cozy, my nod started. And sure enough, my manager noticed. And, uh, you know, after the morning meeting, we're all getting into this van. But before we leave the office, you know, I'm walking out and I feel this tap on my shoulder and it's it's my manager and he's telling me, uh, you're loaded. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just super, super tired. And uh, he's like, no, well, I'm not going to let you go out to work today. I go for real. I'm just super tired. And uh, he made me promise to to go to some meetings with him, you know, and I thought promotion. I thought for sure that he was talking about going to some meetings because uh, I was going to be promoted, you know, to the next level because of my sales. But, you know, sure enough, I promised to go to some meetings with him and a few days went by and I got that tap on the shoulder again. He goes, remember those meetings I told you about? Let's go. And it was after work. I wanted to get my drinking on and stuff, but it was like, all right, cool. And so I go. And we get on the subway, we get on one train, we get off at one stop, we get on another train and get off on another stop. We walk a few blocks down and then we go into this church basement. And lo and behold, there you were. All of you were there. You know, it was a 12 step meeting. I couldn't even tell you which one it was. I just know it was a 12 step meeting and people were happy and they were they were smiling and drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and i thought to myself this has to be some kind of party but what kind of party is this i wasn't really sure but there was no drinks out no liquor and i was like trying to figure out who had the hookup i was trying to get the connection and you know and and nobody had anything to add into my coffee nothing and it was like what and then they call the meeting to order and, you know, they're doing chips just like we would do <laughs> how many pillows were sold. It was odd. I had never been to a 12 step meeting before. And these people were genuinely happy. They were laughing. They were chanting things. They kept saying stuff and they kept talking about their story, you know, around recovery and not drinking and using. And I was thinking to myself, WTF, like why the face? Like I couldn't figure it out. And I was wondering what I was doing here now all of a sudden. Um, but I promised that I would go to these meetings with him. And so I went to, you know, a few more meetings and I was just trying to get the hookup. Like who, who is it that's got the dope? Who's got the booze? Who's got the whatever? And and I couldn't find anybody. I couldn't find anybody. And it was like, oh, my God, these people are like on a natural high. These people are serious. Like there's nobody here who's, you know, who's got who's got drugs or booze. And I can remember it was funny, you know, thinking, oh, it must be it must be, you know, Larry. Larry's the guy who makes the coffee. And I remember 
with my gay butch self walking up to Larry, trying to be all feminine, swirling my cup of coffee going, hi, Larry, like, hey, can you hook me up? And, you know, Larry's like, hey, uh, keep coming back. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there were no, uh, you know, all the batting of my eyes and uh, all of my trying to, you know, persuade and manipulate. There was nothing to persuade and manipulate. I was at a 12 step meeting and these people were serious about their recovery. They were laughing about stuff and there was nothing funny. There was n- I found nothing funny about what they were talking about because I just wanted to get my drinking and my drug on. You know, I didn't have that job too much longer after that. I stopped showing up uh, and realized that there was no promotion and I, you know, just kind of quit going. But I can remember being in the Bronx and wandering the streets at night, uh, looking in church basements for you people, looking in, um, you know, in meeting halls to see if there were meetings, uh, 12-step meetings happening. Because I knew that I was wandering around the streets um, looking not only for drugs and alcohol, but I was actually looking to be relieved of the bondage of self that I had been really chasing um, away the despair, the sadness, the doubt, the depression, the anxiety, the fear, the anger that I was feeling inside and that I was trying to chase it away by using drugs and alcohol. And it was no longer working for me. That pain body was, um, was just awful. I did another geographic. I met a woman and we quote unquote fell in love. And I made another geographic back out to California. And there I was, you know, in 1985, December of 1985 in Inglewood, California. And I, of course, do a disappearing act. This woman had never been to California before, didn't know the territory. I certainly did. And I was off and running. And then I introduced her to my drug of choice at the time, which was smoking cocaine. And she knew that we were in trouble. And so I ended up in a hospital program uh, trying to get sober. And of course, one more time trying to do, you know, trying to get clean for somebody else. Um, And it wasn't until I hit my rock bottom. I'll share with you what my bottom was like. Um, you know, I had a really good job working for a telecommunications company in Chinatown uh, in Los Angeles. Um, I had a nice place to live. I drove a car. I mean, things, you know, my life, my life was good. My relationship was good, um, as good as it could be for someone who's drinking and drugging like I am. But, uh, you know, what ends up happening is, is that, you know, one too many times I'm out on one of those three and four day sprees that the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about, you know, that I'm not coming home that. And at the time there were no such thing as cell phones. So if people were missing, like when I was missing, I was missing. And unless I got to a pay phone or got to use somebody's telephone inside their house, I wasn't calling anybody to check in or do anything like that. So when I was gone, I was gone. And I remember coming to one day, just feeling tired. I felt like a stray dog that had been hit by a car. So it had a limp. I had patches of hair missing, if you will. If you can imagine the stray dog having patches of hair missing 
walking with a limp, um, you know, walking with its tail tucked between its leg, its head down, fleas and scratching and walking, you know, really not even in a straight line, but just kind of like on an angle. You know, for me, that's if you can imagine that stray dog, for me, that's what it felt like on my on my last on my last day. And 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 see, the thing was that I had been in and out of the rooms of of 12 step programs of cocaine anonymous, narcotics anonymous, alcoholics anonymous. I uh, had even gotten a sponsor while I had gone in the hospital program and all of that stuff. But you know what? I wasn't ready until this one night. And it was, it was January the 9th, uh, 1987. And that was the day that I came to. And I, I felt like that stray dog. And for me, it felt like I had two options and two options only. Option one, somebody shoot me and take me out of my misery. Or B, number two, someone show me how to live. And so I remember that I have felt something. I have felt some glimpse of hope in those 12-step meetings. I remember that the people there looked genuinely happy. And they were talking about how amazing their life had become. And so I wanted what they had. I wanted to be shown how to live, but I had to surrender this time. And I had to surrender in a way that I had never surrendered before, which was truly, truly to go back into a hospital program. I'm one of those people who uh, needs professional help. And I remember calling and going in. I remember smoking some weed just before I went in, just to kind of take the edge off, just to kind of feel okay. And, um, and sure enough, I surrendered to the Life Starts program, which was at the Centinella Hospital at the time. And I remember, you know, going in there again for the second time and just saying, help me, help me. Um, I was ready. I was ready. Because, see, in the past I had done, I had done, you know, meetings to save my job or to save my relationship or because my family found out that I was drinking and drugging because they were like, you need to do something about your life. You need to get it together. But I hadn't been ready yet until this day that I was ready to surrender. It was for me, my bottom. And I remember going in there, them taking my clothes, them giving me some scrubs to put on, them giving me a bed. And I remember just passing out and sleeping for about two days or so and coming to recognizing that there I was in this hospital program and that I was just willing to do what they said. You know, I went in talking about I'm an addict, I'm an addict. And they said, if you're an addict, you're an alcoholic. Okay, then I'm an alcoholic too, then whatever it is. I mean, I was just willing to go to any lengths. I remember I had a sponsor at the time as well. Um, that I wasn't really utilizing to the highest and the best. I remember getting on that pay phone and calling her and, uh, and, and letting her know. I said, lovey, I'm at the hospital program. What do I do? And she said, look, I only got two questions for you. One is, are you tired? And I said, yeah, I'm tired. I'm really tired. And she goes, and the second one is, are you willing to go to any lengths for your sobriety and for your recovery? 
And the answer was clearly yes. I was willing to do whatever it took because I had been surrendered at that moment. I was powerless over alcohol. My life was unmanageable. I didn't even have a life. I wanted my life to end. So yeah, my step one was was a thorough step one. I'm powerless over alcohol, over drugs, over people, places, things. My life is unmanageable. I I admitted that I had been stuck in patterns uh, of beliefs and behaviors that were no longer serving me, and um, that I needed a power. I needed some kind of power because it wasn't me. My life had become unmanageable. And so she said, okay, good. Stay there. And when you get out of there, go to X. She told me to go to ACW, which is a, a women's recovery facility. And I was to stay there for three months. And it was like, okay, I was willing to do whatever it took. I had just simply surrendered. And I remember being in that hospital program and doing everything that they told me. I remember telling all of my secrets. I remember just laying it all on the line and, and being willing to go to any lengths. If they would have told me, pick up these two pails of horse manure and jog around the block 10 times, I was knocking you down to get those two pails of horse manure because I was willing to go to any length. I was willing to do it. I would raise my hand. I would I would be of service. Um, and from there, sure enough, I went into the into the Alcoholism Center for Women and I stayed there for 90 days as well. And when I came out, when I came out of there, I got involved immediately on a course of action. My my sponsor was doing a big book workshop. It was great. Uh, and this big book workshop met every week for about two hours, two and a half hours. And we took the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, a dictionary, a pen, a pencil, and a highlighter. I also brought a ruler with me. And we started from the blank page. And she opened up the book and she said, what's on the blank page? What do you see? And I said, nothing. The page is blank. She goes, that's right. That's what you know. You know nothing. You know nothing. So, And we're starting off with a clean canvas, a blank page, whatever you think you know about 12-step program, about Alcoholics Anonymous, about you, yourself, it's all going to be revealed to you. And we started taking each page of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the, the, the founding 12-step program in which all 12-step programs come from. And so for me, it was excellent because, see, I had been to meetings of Cocaine Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, and it was at those meetings where we would be talking about drinking and drugging so tough that I would leave the meeting because the phenomenon of craving would start, you know, and my obsession of the mind would kick it off and I would, you know, go drink and use. But when I was in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, it, it, you know, just talking about alcohol, just, it didn't do me like it, like it did when I was at other, other meetings. And so for me, I got sober in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and I am an alcoholic. I cannot control and enjoy my drinking. It just moves me into other things and my life gets to be a hot mess. And so as she took me through the book, you know, we, we get to that page of the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And, and that was the first promise. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people call themselves recovered alcoholics or recovering alcoholics or, you know, but the book says that we recover. 
And so um, it's, you know, it's after step 10 that we actually have recovered. We returned to some sanity. And I'll, I'll talk about, I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But it was there where it was like, what? There, There's a promise. Here's the first promise is that my life can get better. And if I just take on what, you know, and uh, take on what these people have taken on, if I allow myself to be guided, if I am shown how to live sober, then um, I too can be successful. So there was that hope. I, I was no longer hopeless. I had hope that if I followed some simple instructions and tools, even though at times it wouldn't be easy, um, but I I figured out by watching folks that I too could have a life that was happy, joyous, and free. And as we embarked upon the pages of Alcoholics Anonymous and the and the forward to the additions and, you know, looking at, um, you know, sentences that said to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of the book. You know, it's like what this book is going to show me precisely how to recover. If I do this, here's my here's some more hope precisely how to recover. So if I do what they did, then I get to have uh, a life of sobriety, a life of 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 peace, of joy, of, of freedom, freedom from alcohol. Uh, and I wanted that. I wanted that more than anything. I was truly, truly surrendered. And I got an opportunity to learn that my disease, my dis-ease is of a threefold nature, that I had a spiritual malady, first of all, was that, that there was a spiritual sickness within me. See, we're, we're wired to, to, to know ourselves and our life uh, governed by a power greater than ourselves, that, that creative intelligence. So we, we're wired to know God. And see, the thing too was that, hey, wait a minute, we were talking about God? I was this fellowship. I was kicked out for being gay. Like, oh my gosh, WTF, one more time. Why the face? Like, what's going on here? I hope this is really going to work because they're talking about God here. And I got kicked out of God. I got kicked out of God when I was a teenager. Like, whoa, am I going to get kicked out again? So there was some fear there. But I learned that this was a spiritual malady. I learned that it was a mental twist, that I had a mental twist. And that I had a physical allergy. That once the alcohol was in my body, that I had an allergic reaction, an abnormal reaction. I did not, my body did not respond like other people. And that my mental twist was my perception. It began to tell me that I could drink or even use drugs as if I didn't have an allergy. And so this mental twist, this spiritual malady, and this physical allergy all together made up alcoholism and that I suffered from, from this and that when I was trying to control my drinking, I couldn't enjoy it. And when I was trying to enjoy my drinking, I could not control it because once I put it in my system, it, it created this phenomenon of craving and I wanted more and I did not know how to stop. And the only reason that it had ever gotten in my body was because of this mental twist. And the only reason I had this mental twist was because I had this spiritual sickness. 
And what I, what I got an opportunity to learn is, is that once the spiritual malady had been straightened out, once I was well spiritually, that the mental twist that I would return to sanity, that I would return to sanity and would not introduce alcohol into my system ever again. Like that was something to live for. And I was living to experience what that could be. And so I embarked with my sponsor and many others in studying the textbook Alcoholics Anonymous, in incorporating the steps in my life, in coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. What I got an opportunity to do was I got, I came to believe that by reconnecting with consciousness, with God, with life itself, that I could reestablish a healthy life, a life of peace, a life where, where I was no longer in fear and anxiety and doubt and depression. And that, that in step three, when I made that decision to focus my will and my connection on this power greater than I am that lives within me and all around me, that it was there that I got a new quote unquote GPS. And that's really what it is for me, that I allowed life itself to be my GPS, my guidance, my guidance, that I allowed this indwelling power and presence, you know, and and sure enough, you know, I, I got an opportunity to uh, make an honest and thorough uh, personal inventory. You know, the people that I was, people, places and things that I resented, I got the opportunity to look at uh, a sex inventory where I used my sex powers to hurt people, where I had harmed people. And I admitted, I admitted to myself and to another human being and to this power greater than myself that lives within me that, you know, that this, this had happened, this went down. But what happened was I did become ready to have these unconscious behaviors and these things that I had adopted. I became willing to recognize that my what they call character defects were not actually uh, I wasn't born with these character defects. I was born with character traits but I had allowed these character defects because of my spiritual malady to rule my life. And I became willing to have these character defects, these shortcomings to be removed from my life as I focused on my character traits. And I removed, you know, through prayer, through meditation, these character defects were removed from me. And I became aware of a peace and a presence and a power, but it didn't stop there. I, I, through the, through our, my fourth step, I came in contact with a list of people that I had harmed and becoming willing to make amends to them and financial amends and going through, through those, um, you know, like, what, is this going to be a letter? Is this going to be a living amends? And, you know, for me an amends is, is, Hey, so-and-so when I, you know, I borrowed $500 from you. I told you I was going to pay you back. I never paid you back. And, and that, you know, and I'm sad that I never paid you back. I'm sad that I hurt you in that way. And I could only imagine what it was like for you. Would you, would you mind sharing with me what it was like for me to make a promise to you that I didn't keep? 
and what it was like for you not to have that 500 bucks. Like I wanted to hear from them what impact my behavior had upon them. And then I apologized. The apology is not, oh, I'm sorry. I recognize that I harmed you. And I'm committing not to let that ever happen again by changing my behavior and how and what is it that you need in order for us to start with a clean slate? And is that at all possible? What do you need from me so you know how deeply sad I am um, and how I recognize that I've hurt and harmed you? You know, so it, it, it's about changing my behavior and feeling the remorse for having brought hurt and pain upon people's lives that way in the first place. And those amends were, were, were made. And it's interesting because, um, you know, it's, it is in, in, in after doing these amends that the promises come true, you know, even, even in step 10, you know, what I continue to do is, look for selfishness and dishonesty and resentment and fear. And when those crop up, I bring my attention back to this personal power and presence that is living inside of me. You know, it tells me in step 10 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that once I'm in step 10, that it's at this time that sanity has returned. Sanity has returned. I'm no longer insane. That means that I am recovered. And that's what I wanted to get back to that first promise that I am recovered because now I have been powerless over people, places, things, alcohol, drugs, all of that. I was powerless over that. But now, because I have a life that is connected with a higher power, with the higher power itself, this creative intelligence, this indwelling power and presence, now I have returned to sanity and I react sanely and normally when it comes to alcohol. And I find that this has happened automatically. And it's not like anything has been removed. It's almost like I've been placed in this place of neutrality. Like alcohol is no longer an option for me. The problem, as it says, has been removed. And it's in steps 11 that I continue to improve my conscious contact with life, with the universe, with the, with the God presence. Um, um, and simply calling forth this power and this presence to live and continue to guide me in the way of purpose, in the way of love, in the way of peace. And it's because of a, of, of a spiritual awakening. As a result of the spiritual awakening, as a result of these steps, as a result of really dedicating and putting my, my effort into this, it's there that I begin to carry the message to other people who have this disease, you know? Um, and I don't have to worry about the booze anymore or about the drugs anymore because as long as I stay spiritually fit, as long as my spiritual condition is up to par, as long as that spiritual malady is now spiritual wellness, I have been restored to sanity and there's nothing, nothing to fear. I like it. Um, um, 
in uh I think it's in in uh in step 11 where it talks about you know our prayer and meditation and I love that it says um when uh I'm thinking when it gives us direction about about you know um our our day ahead um and I'll read this quote really quickly it says in thinking about our day we may face indecisions we may not be able to determine which course to take. Here, we ask God for inspiration and intuitive thought or decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We are often surprised how the right answers come after we have tried this for a while. I love that sentence. We relax and take it easy. When I think about my day or indecisions or, or situations and problems that come up, I simply ask my GPS, my GPS, how do I get from here to there? And I put on that GPS. I get in contact with that I am presence within me and I relax and take it easy. I don't know about you, but when I get in my car, I'm going to a new address or a new place and I put my GPS on in my car and I relax and take it easy and I allow the guidance. I rely on that voice in the GPS, uh, turn right, you know, make a left, veer to the right, you know, make a U-turn. I follow the directions of that GPS to get me from point A to point B. And today my higher power is my GPS. It is my guidance. It is my power. It is my source, my GPS, my guidance, my power, and my source. And it is within me. It is that still small voice within me, not my stinking thinking. But I love that it says that, you know, after we've tried this for a while, the answers come and the answers come, meaning I know the difference between my stinking thinking and my, my guidance, my power, my source. And so, you know, if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, to 12-step program, whatever it is that you're doing right now, if you're new, I want to let you know that I have been relieved of the bondage of self, that I have been relieved from despair and doubt and depression and anxiety and fear and anger. Yes, they crop up. However, it is because of my spiritual maintenance. It is because of my daily practice my daily practice of just connecting with this indwelling life, this thing that animates my body is, is my higher power. My higher power is within me and all around me. And it is, it is because 12-step program has put me back in touch with this godness, with this goodness inside of me um, that I get to live an amazing life. My sobriety date is January the 10th, 1987. And so I have had the great pleasure and opportunity to live most of my 20s, all of my 30s, all of my 40s, and now into my 50s without picking up a drink and being God conscious. And it's all because I was willing to surrender. I was willing to, to, to follow the direction that was outlined in my 12-step book, in my book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It showed me precisely how to recover. 
from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And so, especially for those who have been around for a while, I mean, Bill Wilson, he died when he was about 36 years sober. And what we know today is that there are many people who are over 36 years of sobriety. And so the evolution of our recovery continues to go on and on and on. And, you know, that pain that I felt when I was a kid, wanting to be a part of, to feel part of a family, to wonder why things happened to me as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous, putting me in touch with a God of my understanding that would be the solution to all of my daily living problems. What I know today is that that was exactly what I needed in order to have the type of recovery and amazing life that I have today. My life today is filled with forgiveness. It's filled with love. It's filled with joy. It's filled with freedom. And I have an opportunity now to continue to support others um, on their spiritual path. And as a result, um, you know, the work that I do today supports people on their spiritual path. And I provide the same spiritual tools for personal transformation, you know, and the same loving support that I received. So if, if you're new or if you've been around for a while and your, your program gets a little bit stale, as mine did for quite some time, it's time to re-up on a bigger God. You know, I don't tell my God how big my problems are. I tell my problems how big my God is. Today, um, when I recognize that I'm stuck in beliefs and behaviors that are destructive, I ask for guidance, internal guidance, and I consciously connect to this presence, and I establish this healthy way of living, and I focus on affirming my life. I focus on the things that bring me joy and I release the resistance to where God would have me be. I love my life today and I am a product of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am a product of a God consciousness and a consciousness um, that has restored me to sanity. I have had the great opportunity through this power and presence to release any behaviors that no longer serve me. And now to also discover behaviors that are no longer working for me. Yeah, fear and anger and anxiety and doubt and depression and despair will crop up from time to time. But I know what to do. I know how to deal with life on life's terms. And I know how to, pro how to use spiritual tools and principles to get on the other side. You know, I've been promised in Alcoholics Anonymous a life beyond my wildest drunken dreams. And I get to create the life that I crave. And Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs have given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. So if you're tired and sick and tired, uh, whether you have been sober and clean for a while or whether you're new to recovery, if you're sick and tired of the despair, the doubt, the depression, the anxiety, the fear, the relapse, then surrender. Surrender, pick up the spiritual toolkits that is laid at your side, accept the loving support 
and remember that right where you are, God is. Call upon that power and presence within you and the answers will come as you get your house in order. This is the promise that we have been given. This is the promise that I continue to receive on a daily basis. And this is the promise um, uh, and the message that I get to carry now to others who want what we have attained. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Sunshine. I love the way you present and I feel like I just sat in an hour of like a motivational speaker. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do for a living? Because I'm assuming that you are well trained in this area. (laughs) I, um, I do, a. have been, um, uh, well, I'm an ordained minister. Okay. There we go. Um, and I've been a, yeah. But even before becoming ordained, this, like when I talked about, you know, being a Jehovah's Witness and really falling in love with God and then kind of being kicked out, like it comes from back then, like reigniting and making that connection one more time with this God of my childhood that, um, yeah, that I've just kind of been able to like be reunited with. Sometimes it feels like, you know, like uh, when a when a dog when they show those those TikToks or Facebook uh, of uh, a dog uh, when their when their owner comes back from the military and how they're just like all over them and they've been messing up like that's how I feel with 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 God of my understanding like I feel like oh my God where have you been and it you know like that kind of reunion um, for me and so um, it's been kind of really cool getting to getting to know. Um, a different life uh, now and still, you know, and, and still having it all in a sense, still having it all except the, the booze, you know? I don't know. I have so much respect for you. I just, I'm, I admire you so much and I don't have that sentiment with very many people. Oh, well, um, thank you. I heard like Eckhart Tolle and I heard Wayne Dyer. I heard some of my gurus come out of your mouth. Do you have some sort of specific um, spiritual you, understanding today that you could encapsulate? Yeah. Um, you know, for me, Bill Wilson was hanging around. Um, I, it, it's undocumented, but Bill Wilson was hanging around people like Ernest Holmes and um, Silk, Dr. Silkworth and Carl Jung and um, people of, of a philosophy um, that really talked about the power and presence can be found within and that it is there where we meet God. And, and even in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 55, you know, Bill Wilson writes that deep down within every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Or he even says that the great reality, capital G, capital R, can be found within. But it, you know, it might be obstructed with calamity and all kinds of other stuff. And and that is exactly the philosophy more than a religion today that I follow. I follow this philosophy that there's one power, one presence, one life, and it created everything out of itself. Therefore, everything is the unique, unrepeatable, magnificent way that 
God, that life, that universe, that spirit source shows up, you know, and when we begin to really see one, one another and ourselves as an extension of this power and this presence, that we are really the thing itself in human form. And we begin to treat each other with that honor and dignity that then is when we create a world that works for everyone. So it, that's kind of the philosophy that I follow. Um, I'm an ordained minister with uh, Centers for Spiritual Living. And so it's it's pretty much a culmination of a lot of threads of, uh, of philosophies and religions, you know, based in oneness, based in unity, based in love, based in humanity, really recognizing and awakening to its spiritual magnificence. So Eckhart Tolle and Wayne Dyer, Michael Beckwith was my teacher from Agape. Uh, he was in the movie The Secret. Um, so, you know, uh, 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 Abraham Hicks, yes. people like that are are, are folks that have uh, influenced me and in helping to to guide me um, to a deeper awareness of this power and presence that for me is life. That is higher power. You know, my GPS, I like calling it my GPS, that internal GPS. That. Like I said it. I said it and just follow it. Just like I got it, you know, and so I trust God and love people, trust God, love people, trust God, love people. And that's my, those, that's my walking orders. Trust God, love people. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.